Polmap's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's episode, we talk to Nathan Brown about his book co-authored with Shima Hattab and Amr Adli called Lumbering State, Restless Society, Egypt in the Modern Era, just out with Columbia University Press. We'll also talk to Daniel Neep about his article, What Have the Ottomans Ever Done for Us? Why History Matters for Politics in the Arab Middle East. And finally, we'll check in with Wolfram Lacher about Libya's upcoming election. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by my George Washington University next door neighbor, Nathan Brown. He's the author, along with Shima Hattab and Amr Adli, of a new Columbia University Press book, Lumbering State, Restless Society, Egypt in the Modern Era. Uh, Nathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. So, so tell us about this book and what uh, the three of you were trying to achieve. Um, well, the short news, uh, short story is this is, was a fun book to write, and it was it, it's not a traditional scholarly monograph where we're doing a very you know focused research project. Instead, it was an opportunity to sort of step back a little bit and say um, Egypt has been a very interesting place in some good ways, in some bad ways, uh, for Egypt watchers, but also for scholars, academics, political scientists, especially um, uh, in, in, in recent years. And so it's pro- it may be time to sort of step back and take a little stock. What does Egyptian politics tell us about politics generally? What do general ideas about politics help us understand about the Egyptian case? But there's something else that's been going on that's also a little subtle, but to me is, 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 is marked when you take a long range view in terms of scholarship on Egypt. When I started working on Egypt, which was back in the 1980s in grad school, um, there was an American and maybe you could say a little bit of a European academic community focusing on Egyptian politics. And of course, there were all sorts of Egyptians, academics, intellectuals, and general public who were interested in politics. Those were separate worlds. They intersected occasionally. They didn't talk to each other that much. They were asking different questions. They were publishing in different languages when they published. uh, different kind of conceptual frameworks and so on. And those walls are still there, but they're just much lower. So what we wanted to do was essentially to have what I would say would be kind of a, a more globalized conversation about Egyptian politics, one that kind of drew on debates and discussions among Egypt. And Egypt has been a very politicized place in some ways in, in recent years, but also was still in, in conversation with sort of global trends in, in uh, political analysis and understanding. So that's what we were trying to bring together in the book. Um, um, uh, and 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 to and to produce something that would be of more general interest than as than sort of a traditional focused scholarly monograph. And each of you took the lead on one of the sections, but the way you describe it, it was genuinely a, an ongoing dialogue. Absolutely, yeah. So um, uh, Shema, who's at uh, uh, Cairo University, uh, is really an expert on social movement. She's a Latin Americanist um, and kind of looks at Egypt through those lenses. Amr Adli's a, a, a political economist um, and you know has just come out with his own book on Egyptian political economy a couple of years ago from Stanford University Press, Cleft Capitalism. Um, and I sort of focused on political institutions. So I kind of took the lead on one part, uh, Shema on the second part, uh, Amra on the third part, but we circulated drafts back and forth. At this point, if you were to take a specific sentence and say, who wrote this, I wouldn't be able to tell you. So to get into the substance of the book, I, I thought a nice place to start might be with the actual title, um, since uh, uh, it, it's quite evocative. Um, so Lumbering State, Restless Society. Let's go one by one and tell me, what do you what do you mean by that? And what were you trying to convey? So start with the lumbering state. What is it that we need to know about the Egyptian state? Well, what we were trying to do, I think, was again, to take a little bit longer range view of, of Egyptian politics, especially on the state side. Um, and an awful lot of political analysis in Egypt over the last uh, decade or so is very understandably focused on short-term developments, uprising, authoritarianism, renewed authoritarianism, you know, uh, 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 post-authoritarian transitions and, and, and so forth and so on. Um, and so it's been really focused on regime type. Underlying that 
is this Egyptian state that is that is just an enormous presence in Egyptian society and can't only be reduced to the ruler or the regime. Of course, the ruler is an extremely important figure um, and, and, and regime type is a very interesting question, one that we, we address, but there's something long-term going on there. And specifically, what I would say is, we were talking a little bit about a historical arc of an Egyptian state apparatus that emerged um, in the 19th and, and, and 20th centuries, really by mid to late 20th century, um, was present in almost all spheres of Egyptian society, but in some sense overreached. Um, and some of the story, economically, socially, politically, of the late 20th century and early 21st century um, has to do with a state that um, in, on one sense is omnipresent in society, but on the other hand, it's sort of unwieldy, unwieldy for, for rulers and regimes to manipulate, and in some ways, unable to deliver the kinds of, of policy performance or public services um, that it promised to in an earlier era. So what's interesting is that you, you know, the, the book really goes through kind of sector by sector, showing how the state expanded and developed various corporatist forms and inserted itself into all these aspects of life. Um, but then you also show how over time uh, societies found ways to, uh, you know, to kind of work around it, work through it, and kind of new forms of politics emerge through that. Um, yes, yes, um, that's, that's absolutely right. So yeah, that's, that brings us to the um, um, uh, restless society part. So this is not a society that is simply acted upon, simply an extension of, of, um, of, of, of the rulers, the regimes, um, and so on. And I would say an awful lot of the most interesting scholarship in Egypt has actually been a little bit more on, on, on the society side in, in recent decades. Again, when I started, there was a real emphasis on, you know, regimes, what Nasserism was about, what the Arab Socialist Union was about, about uh, um, uh, uh, economic infitah as sort of a policy question. Um, but, you know, Amr does an awful lot of great work on exactly how it is that Egyptian enterprises are structured um, and how they've reacted to and actually, in a sense, molded even some of the uh, uh, policy environment. Um, if you take a look at the at the um, uh, social realm, for instance, it wouldn't be unusual, say, a, a, a generation ago, if you raise the question of civil society in Egypt to say, well, there isn't any, right? It's a, there's, there's state-controlled trade unions and, and there's state-controlled uh, professional syndicates. Um, there's a very heavily managed party system. There's no civil society in Egypt. You could have easily heard that, 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 that statement. Um, and without getting into conceptual debates about exactly what, civil, what qualifies as civil society, it's clear that there have been real changes in how it is that Egyptians have organized themselves in ways that forcefully, pressed themselves on everybody's attention, obviously in, in, in January 2011 in the aftermath, but that have a real antecedent in terms of, 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 of protest movement, in terms of professional associations actually Yes, they're state licensed, but they have a little bit of vitality. Uh, wildcat strikes and actually struggles between um, sort of informal labor organizers and the formal labor sector and so on. There's an awful lot more that was going on that we missed and, and that probably became more um, lively in the late 20th century and especially in the early 21st century. Now you spend a fair amount of time uh, early on differentiating between the regime and the state and showing the ways where the ostensible leader, the president, is and isn't able to kind of harness the state and where there's resistance and uh, independent power centers. Talk us through that a little bit. How do we understand the regime versus the state in a system like Egypt? Um, that's an open question, right? So as political scientists, we can define what regime is and we can define what state is. Um, and, um, and, and we deliberately use those terms sometimes as political scientists to say, wait a second, there is the entire state apparatus and there's a system or there's a group of people or structures that are sort of at, this, at the center of it controlling it. That's, that's a distinction that we often make in theory. When it comes to a lot of countries, we actually don't make it in practice, right? Um, it's very easy, I think, in political analysis to write something about Egypt and refer to the state and use, for instance, CC interchangeably, 
interchangeably. Here's what CC is trying to do. Um, when you're talking about something having to do with, you know, local taxation or or sermons in mosques and 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 so on, um, so so I think the distinction can be made. But what, in a, in a sense, what we're trying to do in the book is say how much does that distinction make sense? Because that varies over time, right? If you go back to the height of the Nazareth experiment, I think there was a sense in which the uh, Nazareth regime had a series of structures um, to, to, to the Arab Socialist Union. It had, it had an ideology of sorts. Um, it used security services in, in, and, 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 and um, made key appointments and so on in a way that really diminished, it didn't eliminate, but it diminished the distinction between state and regime. And a lot of the period of the late uh, 20th century and early 21st century, essentially the Sadat and Mubarak presidencies, um, I thought, I think what, what we what we find is a little reconfiguration of that, ways in which um, the regime withdrew a little bit, let little parts of the state kind of micromanage themselves. There was never any point at which they threatened the integrity of the state apparatus, but they did have some, they did have uh, some leeway. Uh, one thing, one way to interpret, I think, the last, the post-2014 period is not simply a, um, a, a reconfiguration of authority within the state apparatus itself. So, you know, military is more important, security services are more important, judiciary is getting a little bit sidelined um, and so on, but something that may be happening um, Maybe if there's a second edition, we'll have to expand more on this. Um, is a recentralization of authority within the hands of the presidency. So one thing that the CC presidency represents, I think, might be not an elimination, but a diminution of the distinction between regime and state. So that if you're a low-level bureaucrat in the state, in some some Egyptian state apparatus, you're probably far more aware of policy directions and far more worried about people looking over your shoulder than you would have been a couple decades ago. It's really interesting. Why, why don't we focus on uh, two of the sectors that you have particular expertise in um, of the three authors, uh, the religious sector and the judiciary. Um, so walk us through a little bit how this distinction between state regime society plays out in something like the judiciary. Um, so so uh, the judiciary is on the one hand, an a state institution, you know, current structures of which date back to the uh, late 19th century, some to the mid 20th century. And so, and so, so these are institutions with some kind of sense of corporate identity, some kind of sense of tradition. Um, they're also um, institutions in which, at least for some of the matters that are brought before them require some initiative from somebody in society. So for instance, the administrative court system, um, which seemed to be about the most boring part of any state apparatus, right? Administrative law. Um, in Egypt, this was actually very, very important because the administrative courts have jurisdiction in any case in which the state is a party. So somebody is upset with their evaluation in uh, you know, the, 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 you know, Bureau of such and such, um, they file suit in administrative court. Um, somebody is trying to challenge the municipality because if they're, 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 they've, you know, ruined their their storefront some construction. Again, these sorts of things can go to administrative courts. So there's some way in which courts get sucked in or introduced uh, 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 by social actors. Um, sometimes individuals, increasingly, especially in from the 70s or 80s on, there was actually some strategizing about these by key groups, like Islamists discovered, wait a second, we've got some legal provisions, which if we go to court, we might might win some cases. So, so there's, there is some, some societal investment in this. In terms of the regime, um, what you see in Egypt over the last, I would say, couple generations is a little bit of a yo-yo in terms of how the regime treated the judiciary. If you go back to, um, say, the 1950s or 1960s, there was, I think, a sense of the regime, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. Who really cares about these uh, disputes between husband and wife, between you know landlord and tenant, tenant and so on? Um, and so the judiciary will just do what it's going to do. By the way, you know, it's, it's the regime, members of the regime who are guiding the legislative process. 
Um, and so the judiciary was just doing what it was doing. The regime created a parallel judiciary for security of political cases. That's essentially what it did. Hmm. Um, and so they want somebody put in jail. They want a, you know, a, a political opponent marginalized in some way. They have ways of doing that outside the normal judiciary. And actually, they were explicit about this. Um, judiciary didn't like that. They pushed back. There was a conflict in, 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 in the uh, uh, 60s into, into the 70s. Out of that emerged a new situation, essentially in which, um, as I would describe it, the judiciary was given much more autonomy, key appointments were kept within the regime. So essentially it was like, do whatever you want, um, but we want to make sure that you're not going to go too far. And we'll do that by appointing the prosecutor general, by having some role in, in senior judicial appointments. Um, so there were ways in which, in which you know, or ju judges wanted uh, perks. Um, so there are ways in which the, reg the, the regime can kind of keep the judiciary on a long leash, but still on, on, on a leash. Um, and that leash got very long at some point and really caused some headaches. It didn't cause existential threats, but really caused some headaches. When 2011 comes, uh, the story I would tell of the judiciary is of a judiciary that saw this as both a threat and an opportunity. It was a threat in the sense that, you know, there was disorder in Egypt and the judiciary is a conservative force, a force for order. But on the other hand, an opportunity. This presidency, which had kept them on a long leash, suddenly this leash was dropped. And they could move out on their own. And so you have a couple years in which the judiciary is, in a sense, replicating within its own ranks some of the struggles that are going on in Egyptian society. Um, and that's now coming to an end. I would say post-2013, uh, what you see is a reversion, not to the earlier pre-2011 period in which the judiciary was on a long leash, but a much, much shorter leash in which uh, some... Uh, 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 some legislative changes have been made that really ensure that the judiciary cannot even be a headache to the regime in most issues. I thought it was actually a very uh, interesting illustration of the difference between regime and state. When you have the you know the the courts ruling against Morsi and pushing back, and uh, elected presidency didn't have a chance against the power of the state. Um, yes, had this. Had this gone on, I mean, had Morsi managed to come to some kind, either, either sort of face down, I think the security apparatus or um, um, come to some kind of accommodation with them, um, my guess is over the long term, the judiciary would have been worn down, but that didn't happen. Morsi was out after a year and there was no question that the judiciary by and large was very glad to see him go. Well, let's talk about the religious sector where you've got Al-Azhar on the one hand, and then you have, of course, wide scale social mobilization around questions of religion. So that lets us see this from a slightly less state centric view, but clearly the state is still there. Yes, the, uh, the state is very much there in the religious realm, but it's uh, so, sometimes the way to see this and the ways even some Egyptians talk about it is you've got kind of this official religious establishment that is the mouthpiece of the state. Um, and there are some parts of the official religious establishment that are mouthpieces of the state. But one thing that just became clear on this is just how big and diverse the state apparatus in the religious sector is. So there is El-Azhar, huge institution, a university, research institutions, primary, secondary schools, and so on. There's a Ministry of Religious Affairs, which is different and distinct. Uh, there is uh, Darlifta, which is a small part, but, but again, uh, distinct. And there is the Ministry of Education, which teaches religion is a mandatory subject in the Egyptian state schools. Um, there's religious broadcasting. Uh, and so, so basically all kinds of places that you look, even when it comes, for instance, to the parliament. The parliament is not a religious body, but their legislative personal status law in which they have to consult with religious scholars. So the religious establishment begins to be, uh, look something that is sprawling, lumbering, partly under the, uh, uh, partly operating at the um, uh, behest of the regime, but also with different parts off doing different things in, in, in areas of, of, of social and political life that we wouldn't normally look to. Well, maybe that's a way to get into another 
thing which is interesting about the book and a place we could you know, maybe spend a few minutes talking about, which is there's a, kind of a very interesting impulse in the book to, on the one hand, um, compare Egypt and find ways of seeing Egypt as not exceptional in terms of its experiences with colonialism, the political economy, um, but on the other hand, really trying to show the specific configurations that make Egypt what it is today. Let's talk, tell me a little bit about how you thought about comparison and, um, you know, the value of comparison in terms of understanding a complex uh, country like Egypt. Um, I think you you put your finger on an ambivalence which an awful lot of, of scholars feel who who um, uh, study Egypt, actually many countries in the region and other regions as well. On the one hand, we want to say, hey, you can't just come in and plug Egypt into your externally derived model. You know, we're not just, you know, an N of one in an N of 150 survey and so on. There's, there's particularities about the Egyptian case that when you do that kind of analysis, you'll be doing violence to Egypt. There's an impulse to say that. and But there's also an impulse to say, wait a second, um, Egypt is not exotic, unique. Um, there's, we, we, we can't subscribe to kind of Egyptian exceptionalism. Um, and, and both of those impulses are, are real and stem from very, uh, I think, uh, they're, they're not just emotional, there's, there's, there's something epistemological going on there that I think we need to pay attention to. Again, because this was not a scholarly monograph, we didn't worry about sorting that out in terms of formal research design, right? So this is not, we're not saying Egypt is a critical case or Egypt, you know, here, here are scope conditions um, um, and, 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 and here's why it is we think that Egypt is the most appropriate test for some of these ideas. We're not quite doing it that way. But what we are saying is that there's certain questions that arise in Egypt that um, actually Egypt is not the only society to have grappled with. So for instance, an awful lot of the political economy work in the, in the, in the last uh, uh, section. Egypt is dealing with a world in, you know, for instance, with uh, what's referred to as the Washington consensus. So, you know, late, late 20th century in which a lot of countries are, and a lot of uh, political leaderships are kind of moving in the direction or feeling pressed to move in that direction. Um, so what Egypt is, is experiencing in terms of international pressures, suggested models, policy options, and so on, looks a little bit familiar. Um, and so we really have to understand it in that context. Or, or, or when Shimel was uh, taking the lead on some of the uh, social movements, okay, there's ways in which, for instance, organized labor played a role in Latin American politics that actually alert us to some sorts of things in Egypt that we might have otherwise overlooked. So it's comparative in that sense. But at the same time, let me go back, for instance, to the um, uh, judiciary or the religious establishment. When you study authoritarian systems, there's often an attempt to just, or, or just an assumption, we, gotta, we need to look past the judiciary. Um, look, these are regimes that just do whatever they want, legal system, ju judiciary, doesn't matter. Egypt says, no, wait a second, even within an authoritarian context, we might want to uh, uh, pay some attention to it. Religious sector, I would say something uh, similar. There is, I think, a secular bias in an awful lot of of political science research. Um, and so we're saying, no, actually, even if you're studying the state apparatus, most states actually have um, religious apparatus. So there's ways in which we're saying Egypt is not exceptional, but, but there are certain things that e the Egyptian experience highlights um, that we might overlook if we were, uh, if we come in sort of with a set of, of conceptual categories that are derived from other settings. Great. So one last question um, then. So I know from the uh, from the editorial process and reading multiple drafts of, of this book that I found from the three of you a kind of almost surprising resistance to really center 2011 in the analysis of not wanting and pushing back against the uh, the idea that this was a the, the critical or even a critical moment in Egyptian history. So tell us why you didn't want uh, 2011 to frame the book. Um, that's a great question, and it's not because we didn't care about 2011 or 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 regarded as insignificant. Um, but I would put it this way, and, and this is kind of the argument we make ex explicitly in the book: um, political scientists explain outcomes. That's what we do. 
Um, and that's great. And that's probably what we should do. But when you look at Egypt, that outcome seems to be a moving target. In 2011, it's like, how come everybody's turned out in the street? 2012, how come you have this? How come you have a democratic transition? How 2013, how come you have military coups? How come you have renewed authoritarianism? And so on. And so the outcome just seems seemed to shift from year to year. And what that did was make it seem like we're almost talking about different countries and different political systems. So let's step back. It's not that we want to dismiss the focus on 2011. And, and actually, among many things that came out of 2011, the aftermath, a lot of good scholarship was, was among those, those things in ways that will be difficult to reproduce now because of the, 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 the terrible research climate. But for, for, for a while, Egypt was a fascinating place and a rich place uh, 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 to do work. So we don't want to dismiss that, um, but we don't want to reduce politics to sort of, you know, chasing the, the, chasing the, uh, the bouncing ball, especially because that ball seems to be bouncing all over the place. All right. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we're talking about the new book by Nathan Brown, Shima Hatab, and Amradli, uh, Lumbering State Restless Society, Egypt in the Modern Era. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on the article segment this week, we're joined by Daniel Neep of the Crown Center at Brandeis University and author of the new article, What Have the Ottomans Ever Done for Us? Why History Matters for Politics in the Arab Middle East. Just came out in International Affairs. Uh, Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, so this article is really interesting. Uh, tell us about it, like why you wrote it and what you think the major contribution is. So the article basically makes the point that political science of the Middle East has overlooked the Ottoman Empire. All our stories about where states come from in the region start with the Sykes-Picot Accord or start with World War I as the, colonial, the origins of these states being based in the colonial partition of the region, uh, Britain and France during this time. My article tries to make the argument that this is wrong, that we actually need to push back our temporal vision and look more seriously at the 19th century and the late Ottoman Empire as being generative of many of the forces and structures that still shape Middle East politics today. Um, in terms of why I wrote the article, I guess there are a couple of um, things that prodded me to do so. Um, first is a really interesting series of interventions by a couple of scholars of international relations, George Lawson and Barry Bazan, based in the UK, who have this argument about benchmark dates. And they talk about benchmark dates in international relations as being the way, the kind of shorthand that's used for talking about IR in terms of its historical development. So for example, 1648 Treaty of Westphalia is shorthand for talking about where states come from. World War II is shorthand for talking about the origins of the modern state system. And they argue that these benchmark dates are helpful for teaching purposes, but actually can be quite misleading. This got me thinking, what are the benchmark dates in the study of Middle East politics? And around the same time, a few years ago, as you'll remember, um, 2016 was the centenary of the Sykes-Picot Accord. And there was a whole flurry of events and conversations around Sykes-Picot. And it struck me that if there is a benchmark date in the study of the Middle East, it is the Sykes-Picot Accord. And again, this is mm -hmm. historically, there's, there's some uh, relevance to that. You know, clearly there are legacies of partition and colonialism, extremely important in the Middle East. And political science literature focuses very much on them as we teach students about the region and how it came into being. That has an unintended consequence that we overlook earlier developments. And I think because of that, ironically understate the role of imperialism in the Middle East. We under understate the role of Western involvement in the region, of global and international forces in shaping the Middle East if we only start the conversation in World War I. So my article is trying to push back against that and saying, you know, what actually happened in the late Ottoman Empire? Because political scientists are not always terribly cognizant of that. We don't necessarily keep up with the latest thinking and latest uh, research in other disciplines, especially in Ottoman history. And that's really interesting because I, I plead guilty to that as well. And uh, so the first part of the article, um, it, it's really useful, at least for me, that you review kind of where the revisionist Ottoman history is today and how it challenges many of our assumptions. Walk us through that a little bit. What, what are the historians learning that we need to know? Um, so I also um, am guilty of overlooking the Ottoman Empire. I will say that even as someone who is a historically minded political scientist um, and that what I, I started um, 
in my research for my ongoing book project on Syria, I started looking at the Ottoman literature. I thought I'd better read up on what happened in Syria during the Ottoman eras uh, to inform my first couple of chapters and realized I had missed 20 years worth, 30 years worth probably, of um, his geography and new research on the empire. So this article is also a spin-off of my own learning process. Right. And there is nothing in the article that I think would be new to historians, um, but what became very clear is that the way we talk about the Middle East, uh, the Ottoman Empire and Middle East politics is basically stuck probably in the 1960s or 1970s. Never, uh, you know, um, never mind any later than that. And the way in which if you read works such as those by Halliday or Ray Hinbush, who again are historically minded social scientists, right? They discuss the Ottoman Empire in terms of two characteristics. Uh, this idea of decline, that the Ottoman Empire is in some kind of terminal decline throughout the 19th century, starts slowly get chipped away by European powers and lose territory to them. Um, so it's a kind of terminal sick man of Europe. That's one myth that runs through um, our narratives about it. And the other one is a failed modernization, right? The idea that the Ottoman Empire attempts to update itself, attempts to introduce, introduce institutional and military and tax reform in order to keep up with Europe, but is unable to do so because at heart it's a traditional society. Mm -hmm. It's not capable of modernizing itself like England, France, and so forth. Um, and these are the two tropes that really survive throughout our field, but they're not actually accurate. And historians have long refuted um, these ideas. The idea of decline, for example, it's an orientalist trope. It's actually descended from, there's a really interesting genealogy about how this idea of decline is actually um, a kind of polemic idea that's knocking around in the Ottoman Empire several centuries earlier as a way to critique the reforms that are taking place at the time. Um, and is then taken up by Western Orientalists who take this idea of decline and expand it and generalize it as a general explanation for why the empire is not doing as well militarily. Um, so they take this idea and then run with it right. um, as a kind of general explanation for everything that's happening in the empire. And you very nicely survey kind of some of the economic sectors where, you know, they're actually doing okay in the face of colonial uh, and uh, kind of Western dumping of low quality goods and that sort of thing. Right. The economic historians, and again, this goes back to the 1970s, are kind of pushed back against these orientalist mm -hmm. narratives. Economic historians make two points. Firstly, there's not good enough data to make a general assessment of um, overall decline, particularly in the Arab territories of the Ottoman Empire. And yet you, there are pockets whereby uh, pockets of economic activity and local manufacturing activity that do, are surprisingly resilient in the face of England, in particular dumping exports into the region. So the record is more mixed and the economic historians end up being much more interested in who are the relative winners and losers in right. the situation of ongoing economic change in the 19th century, rather than making some kind of grand assessment. So it's all about change, the changing balance of power, which groups become empowered, which groups are able to take advantage of these changing economic uh, circumstances and which lose out. In terms really that are actually very familiar to political scientists mm -hmm. and how we think of uh, bargaining and authoritarian regimes and economic liberalization and so forth. You make a really nice point that uh, on the question of modernization and reforms that um, it's not really fair to compare to Prussia. I mean, nobody can compete with Prussia. Right. Um, the whole idea of it being a failed modernizing effort is that it fails to achieve these kind of Weberian levels of bureaucratic development, which most countries in the West don't achieve either. England doesn't have this kind of Weberian, the US certainly doesn't have this kind of Weberian machine-like bureaucracy by the end of the 19th century. And yet we're judging the Ottoman Empire for not having the same thing. This is clearly absurd. Um, and what is more interesting is if you look at the the kind of unintended consequences of things like the Tanzi March, right? Which are not successful at delivering what Istanbul wants in terms of tax reform, in terms of creating, a, um, you know, undermining the powers of the landlords and landowning families that actually empowers them. And yet at the same time, these landowning families start to think of themselves increasingly as Ottomans. So there is a sense in which the modernizing state becomes the terrain for politics, even though the institutions of the state are not perhaps there in the, in, the, in the way we would expect. So the state becomes the normative terrain for politics during the, during the 19th century too, in ways that you know, kind of warp uh, the, the, logic, the political logic 
of of the of the of the Middle East and lay foundations for later on. So I think the state is more than its institutions, mm-hmm. and if we think of it like that, it gives us a different way of thinking about the long nineteenth century. So you point out um, kind of three more than three, but I want to focus on three for the purposes of this audience, um, kind of implications of this for our analysis. And so, and, and that's the, um, the Arab state building, you argue, like precedes colonialism in ways that we're just not seeing correctly, that sectarian identities uh, are shaped by this in interesting ways, and that the, we're actually understating the importance of imperialism. So why don't we talk about each of those three and kind of, you know, talk about how political scientists uh, need to kind of rethink how they're thinking about this. So why don't um, we start with the, uh, the, the um, state building? Absolutely. So discussions of state building in the Middle East tend to revolve around questions of identity and the putative mismatch between the states that exist now and pre-existing communal uh, groups in the region. This is very familiar. But actually, if you go back to the 19th century, what we see are the transformations already of not just identities, but also economic infrastructures, regional infrastructures, communications infrastructures uh, during this time, which start to reshape the region in different ways. Um, And in the article I talk, I focus in particular on the lands of Syria, on Beledishem, and on Iraq. And I trace, I, I get, kind of give a potted um, narrative explanation uh, or discussion of the ways in which new roads um, create links between the region in different ways. You know, it used to take three or four days to get from Beirut to Damascus. In 1863, the roads built reduces that to just half a day. That's a huge acceleration. Railways, too, are instrumental at connecting grain producers with the outside international markets and so forth. Um, so you have these kind of changes going on that accelerate uh, connections within the region. Um, in the lands of Syria too, you have the first Arab intellectuals who are writing histories of Syria for the first time. Obviously the Ottomans are naming uh, the one province of this region as part of their reshuffle Syria for the first time. Mm-hmm. So again, you kind of get the shifting, again, to go back to my argument that the state is more than its institutions, you have this shifting um, infrastructure, the shifting foundations, um, in terms of economy, in terms of communications, in terms of infrastructure, that later states built on. In Iraq, it works slightly differently, of course. Uh, Roads and railways are less important. Uh, Steamship communication becomes more more important. There's a whole really interesting way in which, um, as well, the different, the kind of, the narrative of that we get about Iraq, particularly for the media, right? It's a Mm -hmm. creation of the British looping together three different Ottoman provinces that never used to uh, have any communications with each other. That's totally wrong. Um, there's this whole interesting interplay between Baghdad and the other major cities in terms of, uh, and there's a whole reshuffling going on of this provincial infrastructure at the same time of the 19th century. So there, it isn't a static environment that the Europeans are bringing states to for the first time. It's a, a much more of a dynamic administrative, economic, and communications infrastructure, um, which we overlook, I think, when we talk about state building. Right. Uh, in the region. And this t- these type of connections help explain why Iraqis unite as Iraqis against the British occupation, why in Syria, um, you know, different groups unite as Syrians against the French. It helps to explain some of the mysteries um, mm-hmm. that um, are, are left unanswered by the Sykes-Picot narrative. And then the, the formalization of sectarian identities. Uh, again, you see this certainly in, historic, in historical literature, but I think you're right that this is often missing from the way political scientists have talked about it. Absolutely. We often overlook the fact that, now we're all constructivists now, right? We all have abandoned primordialism. It only exists as a straw man in literature reviews. Um, and yet constructivism risks slipping back into kind of essentialist discourse. Uh, if we say sectarian identities only become important at certain points when the state recedes, that suggests that they're there underlying, that, mm-hmm. that they're kind of underneath, that they have a more foundational existence in reality um, than other forms of identity. Unless we answer the question of where these identities come from in the first place, we risk slipping into essentialism, right? So actually, if you go to the long 19th century and look at how sectarian identities are crystallized and emerge as categories for um, kind of more rigid categories than they were in the past. It's not that these identities are created ex nihilo in the Mm. 19th century. Occasionally they are, but not often. But they're transformed with new meanings. It's only in the 19th century and the course of the developments that I'm talking about 
uh, that historians have looked into that what are often previously fuzzy um, boundaries between communal groups uh, is really interesting when you look at the rural areas of the uh, Arab Middle East in particular, the, the kind of confusion that there is often in practices and beliefs and um, between different groups we think of as being very distinct and separate. These differences only become solidified in the course of this century that I'm talking about. And we kind of overlook that um, very often. And we don't, you know, for example, necessarily when people are doing kind of um, um, comparative studies of ethnicity um, and conflict in the region, we might look back at the Lebanese civil war, for example, we might look back at other late 20th century moments. We don't push back the lens to look at the, at the 19th century. So I think there's a really interesting argument that firstly, the kind of changes that take place in the 19th century are really essential for informing how we think about ethnicity and sect, but also there's a whole universe of cases that we're not looking at. There's yeah. a whole portion, um, you know, we're kind of selecting on the basis of some kind of temporal definition and not looking at the full universe that's out there. Um, so yeah. I'm like, let's push, let's push back our studies of ethnicity, sect, the state, to look at the late 19th, early 20th centuries too. I guess, the, and the last one then is this argument that you led with in, the, in your introduction to the article about how we're actually understanding the importance of external intervention. So maybe talk about that as our last, um, the last topic. Ah, a great example of that is the Ottoman debt crisis. Um, from what we vaguely remember from our undergraduate readings or more recent readings in Ottoman history, we know the Ottomans borrowed a lot of money from British and French bankers, couldn't pay it back, took out more loans to, to feed that. And this is part of the whole story of failed modernization and decline, of course. What we often overlooked is that this domestic story isn't just a domestic story. It looks like the Ottomans are bad with debt. They have a debt problem. But this is a worldwide situation. There are countries, states all around the world that are borrowing huge amounts of money and defaulting loans from Latin America to the Middle East and beyond for a start. Um, many states in the US are also defaulting on loans. So there's a bigger story here of excess credit excess availability of credit and excess lending going on, which we often overlook. Um, and we also overlook that, for, you know, if the Ottomans are borrowing all this money, who is lending it to them? They're able to borrow loans to service their loans until the world enters a financial crisis, until a financial crisis hits Europe and a linked but separate one hits the US. There is a sudden credit crunch and there's not enough money going around to finance more loans and people start wanting their money back. So this credit crisis in 1873 is so big, it launches what is known as the time as the Great Depression. There is two decades of economic, worldwide economic depression, which we forget about. How much do we even think about this? Um, when we think about the region, we don't very often. Historians do, of course. And they've looked at um, the way in which this debt crisis of the Ottomans is not simply internal, it's not simply a domestic story. Story. It's a global story. It's an international story. It's about. It's one of the earliest um, crises, financial crises of globalization. Yeah, I think, so that's, an, I think that's an endemic problem in our field is uh, the kind of parochialism of it and seeing things as uniquely Middle Eastern when in fact they're global. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I, I think the part of what my article um, tries to do, and I go beyond the historians, I think to some extent is to point out how contemporary many of these issues seem. When we look at the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, these stories sound familiar. Uh, these stories about international financial crisis, the stories about sectarianism and ethnicity um, is being paralleled with the discourse of race, okay? Um, the emergence of these categories of identity all speaks to very contemporary concerns. So I think, again, it underlines the argument that the Ottoman Empire is not simply some past historical polity that we can leave and forget about, it actually can tell us potentially something quite useful um, about the present day. Um, I don't do that in the article. I leave that as the next. I make kind of trying try to create the space for other people and subsequent work to start looking at the Ottoman Empire. So I don't flesh out the arguments about the connections, um, but it's very much intended to be a springboard for future research. Well, thanks. We've been talking to uh, Daniel Neep about an article, which I expect to see uh, sliding into syllabi all over Middle East studies soon. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's current events segment, we're joined by Wolfram Locker of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs 
um, author of the book Libya's Fragmentation. Wolfram, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. So there's an election scheduled in Libya, tentatively at least, uh, for the end of December. And there's been a lot of wrangling over the election law and uh, the context of the elections. Could you walk us through a little bit, bit what the controversies are and what we might expect from this law? So it's still highly uncertain whether the elections will take place in December or whether they will take place at all. And that's partly because um, of the fact that the legal basis for the elections, the electoral laws, are intensely contested. Um, the, uh, the basic problem is that Libya doesn't have a, an agreed on constitution. There is nothing to regulate the separation of powers. So um, there was um, supposed to be a, a negotiation process uh, that would produce um, a, you know, a constitutional framework for the elections. Um, that would have been agreed on between the main parties to the conflict, um, and that should have been negotiated in the framework of uh, the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum, which is a body that the UN convened of 75 uh, Libyan political figures. Um, but uh, that body failed to produce uh, anything on, uh, in terms of a, a constitutional basis, so the UN abandoned its efforts to come to an agreement in that body. And uh, what happened then was that a faction in the East-based parliament, the House of Representatives, uh, went ahead and issued its own electoral laws, a presidential elections law and a parliamentary elections law. And it did so, of course, um, you know, tailoring these laws to its interest. Uh, but it, it also did so without actually putting these laws to a formal vote uh, in parliament. The head of the, the parliament, Adila Saleh, simply issued uh, the presidential elections law um, and the parliamentary elections law was issued by or was, was voted on by a minority. Uh, of parliamentarians. So and, these and, laws and, this are... gets, and this gets back to the really important issue that there is no recognized uh, a political authority, that uh, that's one of the issues in the long running civil war. Indeed. And in fact, the, Libya hasn't had a president until now. So there is um, no precedent uh, to, to regulate the, the president's uh, authority. And indeed, it was very um, contested. It was a hotly contested, contested issue between Libya's warring factions, whether there should be a president, whether there should be presidential elections, and if so, uh, first of all, what competencies this president should have and, um, and who should be eligible to run in these elections. Um, and this uh, faction in parliament, which essentially represents one side in, in the conflict, uh, then simply um, you know, imposed um, a change, a change, a fundamental change to Libya's governing system with the introduction of this presidential elections law that uh, establishes an all-powerful uh, presidency and at the same time um, tailors the, the criteria of candidacy in a way that allows, for example, uh, General Khalifa Haftar uh, to, uh, to run. And this, um, of course, uh, fuels fears among those who fought against Haftar in the last uh, war, 2019-2020, uh, the war in Tripoli. Um, and this is among the, the core issues of dispute. Um, so it's not only about the, the process, the way that these laws were adopted, but it's also about uh, the content of these laws. So are there competing proposals out there then, or is this the only game in town? There are... There is a competing uh, proposal from a rival um, assembly in Tripoli, the High uh, State Council, which wants to hold only parliamentary elections, not presidential elections, um, before uh, a constitution has been agreed on. Um, but these laws uh, of the House of Representatives in the East are really the only game in town, and that's the case because they have received international backing. Um, partly they've received explicit international backing when it comes to the presidential elections law from the UN, from states like France, and partly it's just that there has been, um, you know, silence from the international community when it comes to these laws, and 
um, and that turns them into the default legal basis for these elections. Now, is there any prospect for these elections to meaningfully resolve the the conflicts which have been which have been driving Libya's civil war for all these years? I think the chances of that happening are very very slim, um, and uh, there is you know that's that's partly to do with this contested legal basis, but of course not only. Uh, more generally, the the conditions for these elections are extremely bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the stakes are very, very high. It's, you know, particularly if we're talking about presidential elections, it's a winner-takes-all contest between uh, camps that until recently fought each other um, and that, you know, continue to see the elections as a continuation of the war uh, by other means. The war hasn't really stopped. It's been put on hold by foreign military intervention. Um, And Uh, So the stakes are high, there are no institutional safeguards, there are no, you know, politically neutral security forces to protect the vote, Um, there is no credible uh, judiciary uh, to solve any disputes, Uh, the media landscape is incredibly polarized, is awash with um, disinformation, Um, so the the conditions are are very bad to begin with, and then um, the big risk or the, the big, you know, two, two risks really are that, first of all, there could be um, boycotts, uh, there could be attempts to prevent the, the vote from taking place in certain areas by um, a principled opponents of the vote um, because they reject the current legal framework, but also people who think that they or well, their camp will lose from the elections. Um, And the the even bigger risk, I think, is that whatever happens in these elections, the losers will refuse to recognize the results. Um, And could this trigger a return to uh, armed conflict? So um, it's relatively hard to see a return to, say, all out civil war. Um, and, And that's the case because what's been holding the, the, you know, the relative calm in place for the last uh, year and a half was the foreign military presence, Turkish presence on one side, Russian presence uh, on the other side. So the decision to go to war is no longer really in, in Libyan hands. And as long as that is the case, then it's very hard for these uh, opposing camps to go to all out war, to, to launch another, for example, it's very hard for Haftar to launch another big offensive against Tripoli in this situation. But what could happen is that we see conflict, for example, within Western Libya between proponents and opponents of the elections or between uh, supporters of rival presidential candidates. Why don't we take a, a step back from these elections? And, you know, there have, of course, there have been elections in Libya before. There was an attempt at uh, uh, forming a constitutional assembly. And if you look back at the lessons of what went wrong and why those failed to generate any centralized and effective Libyan state, what lessons can we learn from that process and from those failures? So uh, in 2012, there were actually relatively successful uh, elections. Um, participation in these 2012 elections was, um, you know, was, was, was reasonable, was, was quite high. Um, and there was, I think, you know, you could say public enthusiasm about the electoral process uh, at that time. Um, but at that time, Libya's political landscape looked very differently from, from what it is now. Um, and, you know, the polarization, the, the descent into renewed civil war that happened then from 2012, from, from 2014 onwards, that really changed, that, that, that has changed things lastingly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very hard to draw, I think, direct lessons from, from that exercise. But what we can say from the, the second elections that took place in 2014 to, um, to the parliament that now still sits in the east and that has been divided for the last uh, seven years is that the basic, one basic challenge of any elected authority in Libya is that it has to arrange itself with the forces on the ground. Um, and that, um, that makes it, I think, you know, very, um, uh, very dangerous to expect 
you know, the elections to, to lead to um, a legitimate, uh, a, a government that enjoys popular legitimacy because um, the, the, the ability of that government to govern really depends on its relationship with the forces on the ground. And, and it will be very, um, I mean, it's very hard to see a government that is led by, say, a Western Libyan candidate opposed to Haftar gain authority over the East that is controlled by Haftar. Similarly, it's very hard to see um, Haftar or someone representing him, uh, if they win, that they would actually um, be able to govern Western Libya, where, where their, their opponents have their social base. So that, that is a basic challenge. And then maybe one, one other aspect is the fragmentation of the political landscape. This, you know, it remains the case today that we don't have strong political parties, we don't have cohesive political forces. Um, and in fact, in the parliamentary elections, based on the current parliamentary elections law, political parties don't even exist. Um, so it's you know individual candidates running in, in the local constituencies, and that makes for parliaments that are extremely dysfunctional in terms of their, their decision-making. Um, and there is no real reason to believe that this would be any different if elections take place now. Now, what about the parliamentary elections? I mean, is that something which could in any way balance out the winner-take-all uh, component of the presidential elections? Um, not really, partly because the um, presidential elections law you know, gives wide-ranging powers to this new president, president uh, but also uh, because it's even more uncertain whether the parliamentary elections would actually take place uh, because the way things are currently set up is that the first round of the presidential elections will take place first and parliamentary elections uh, will either take place together with the second round of the presidential elections or maybe even later that you know that's it's not it's not been decided yet and that means that for well if 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 the results of the first round of the presidential elections don't go in the direction that the faction in the eastern parliament would like to see they are likely to cancel the parliamentary elections so looking at the landscape of who's being allowed to run and who's filed a paperwork to run, um, does it look like it's just going to be this kind of factional candidate situation or are there possible unifying figures who might emerge as alternatives? We are yet to see um, a prominent unifying figure. We haven't seen this yet. And in fact, all the potential prominent candidates are polarizing are directly affiliated with uh, the warring camps. And this, uh, of course, goes first and foremost for Haftar himself. It could also go for Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam, if he decides to run, which is quite unlikely. And then there is um, the question of whether the prime minister of the current unity government, Abdul Hamid Dbeiba, whether he um, tries to run, which he is not, technically he's, he's well, he is committed not to run actually in, in, in writing and there are uh, criteria in the elections law that will that could bar him from running so if he decides to run then that would add another controversy to uh, to the electoral process. So as you, as you look at this landscape then um, it, it seems like a pretty grim um, set of possibilities and Certainly Libyans understand that and they can see these problems coming. So what are you hearing um, about uh, you know, people trying to think through what, um, what could be done as an alternative or how to make the most of where we are today? I think that um, there are, I mean, currently there aren't really any serious efforts to, um, to reach compromise solutions. Um, and that's partly to do with the fact that there is no such effort from the internationals. Uh, internationals are really pushing for these elections to take place under any uh, circumstances. So it's like, it's like you know, the train is um, is running, um, and and the direction is uh, is clear. Um, 
And um, yeah, so attempt, there, isn't, there isn't really much space for, 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 um, for any attempts to resolve this uh, dispute over the legal framework for the elections at the moment. Well, great. We've been speaking with Wolfram Locker about the upcoming, possibly upcoming Libyan election. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thank you.